the Pro Wrestling Vault. 35 short stories, including Harley Race, Ricky Morton, Tracy Smothers, and Tim Storm. Along with 300 photos from the independent scene. Taken from Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. Get your book today by going to WrestleVille.com. WrestleVille. It's where wrestling lives. Hey, everybody. This is Keith Elliott Greenberg, longtime pro wrestling writer, columnist, and author. And you are listening to the WrestleVille podcast, where pro wrestling lives. You're listening to the Russellville Podcast. I'm your host, Benny Berry, and today's guest is Keith Elliott Greenberg, a professional wrestling author, author of many things, a writer and extraordinaire. Keith, how are you doing, my friend? It's good, and it's great to be talking to you always. Hey, thank you. Yeah, we've uh, we uh, made contact with each other sometime, I think, last year or the year before when my first book was coming out. And uh, we've just kind of uh, stayed in contact and reached out. You've uh, helped me out with uh, some advice on on some things and kind of walked me through some things I didn't know how to do. And I appreciate you doing that. And so that's how we became friends. And that's that's how we got to know each other a little bit. And we're still getting to know each other. And this is the next step. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, you know, you've had a vast career, um, 40 years of writing, correct? Or, yeah, or 40 little plus. Years. I'd say at this stage, it's 44 years of writing because I started out as a professional writer at age 19. And uh, this year I'm 63. And you've written about a a wide range of stuff. I, I, of course, I know you for your, your work in professional wrestling, but for those who may not know, uh, kind of touch a little bit on some of the other things that you have written, some of the things that you've, you've done in well, your career. I, I'm also, I'm also a television producer and I've, you know, I've done a lot of true crime, both as a TV producer and also as an author, I've written several true crime books. And I wrote a book about the death of John Lennon, the final uh, days of John Lennon's life. I wrote a book about the circumstances and the cult surrounding the death of James Dean. I've written numerous nonfiction children's books. And uh, of course, I've done no shortage of wrestling books, both uh, through WWE's imprint. And most recently, I had a book out that came out in September. Uh, too Sweet Inside the Indie Wrestling Revolution, which culminates in the formation of AEW. And my next book, which comes out in the fall, will be called Follow the Buzzards, Pro Wrestling in the Age of COVID-19. And that book, the, the one you just mentioned, what was, I guess, the premise or what was the idea? Of course, there's definitely a story there because I I even thought myself uh, before I did my my pro wrestling vault volume one, I was uh, thinking of of doing something with COVID and independent wrestling shows and how how promotions were affected across the the, the country and and came into some roadblocks so to speak and and then my project just evolved into something else. But what what was the idea for you and 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 obviously you. You went all the way through with it. So talk to me a little bit about that. 
Well, um, initially, I didn't know it was going to be about COVID. I finished this book about indie wrestling, which really starts with the history of outlaw promotions and builds, you know, through the highs and lows. Um, you know, you have these renegade promotions back in the day that challenged the established promotions. The one I remember from my teenage years would be um, the IWA, which was run by a number of people, including Eddie Einhorn, who was a minority owner of the Chicago White Sox. And they went to challenge both the old WWWF and um, the NWA, and they thought they were going to be a national promotion. And ultimately they, you know, couldn't get into the arenas. They could never get into Madison Square Garden in New York. They put on some pretty good shows at a, an outdoor stadium in Jersey City, New Jersey, but it wasn't Madison Square Garden. And uh, they tried to challenge the Crockett's and, you know, came out on the losing end of that. And I go through the, those promotions. I go through the Paphos promotions, promotion, which went to numerous territories, Memphis, part of the AWA, uh, Dick the Bruiser's old WWA territory. And then I go to the uh, post ECW uh, um, indie scene. Uh, when ECW was swallowed up and there were promotions like CZW and then Ring of Honor who tried to fill the void. And then we go through, you know, these struggling indie promotions and now everything picked up around 2012, uh, both in the US and abroad. So you had Progress and Revolution Pro beginning in, uh, in England and you had, um, you know, in, in the US, you had PWG just shining in Los Angeles and how that built and built and built off the backs of stars like Kevin Steen, who became Kevin Owens and El Generico, who became Sami Zayn and Tyler Black, who became Seth Rollins, um, how it all built to, to uh, the, the Young Bucks, um, until we uh, saw um, the, the beginning of AEW. And um, as I was writing the book, I'm thinking, you know, this indie revolution isn't entirely over. Um, AEW is still considered in some quarters, uh, if it's not an indie, it's uh, indie linked and they use stars from the indies sometimes just for special guest spots. You know, you have groups like GCW that kept going. At the time, Ring of Honor appeared to be a healthy promotion. Uh, COVID sidelined that. And I wanted to keep following that scene. So I said to my executive editor, uh, Michael Holmes, you know, I really think I want to do a sequel here. And, you know, neither of us knew what was really going to happen. Lo and behold, COVID comes in. And it forces a number of those indie promotions to get sidelined. But also, I zoned in on how WWE dealt with uh, the, um, the COVID-19. How, uh, you know, pro wrestling was the one entertainment form that we still had every week on television, which is remarkable. And how both AEW and WWE worked around that. Um, how 
you know, empty arenas were, the, you know, the order of the day, but, uh, you know, there was a certain uh, hollowness to that. And so you had the um, popularization of the cinematic match, and you also had the creation of the Thunderdome. And, um, you know, it didn't fully compensate for not having live fans, but I, I think it helped people forget. And some of those cinematic matches were quite a bit of fun. And, uh, you know, the stadium stampede matches were cinematic matches and, you know, immensely entertaining. And then you had groups like GCW, um, they uh, started doing outdoor shows uh, in, in Indianapolis during the daytime so they didn't have to pay for lights, socially distant shows, the fans were divided into pods, uh, you know, warrior wrestling out of Chicago Heights, Illinois. I went to a show that was on the high school football field so you could spread fans all over that field and all through the bleachers and they weren't right on top of each other. And these were good shows. They were, and people were starved for wrestling. And then there's a fellow, there's a, a promotion out in San Diego called Fist. Uh, and they did these clandestine drive-in shows where fans would be instructed to drive to a parking lot and tune to a certain frequency on their FM radio. And the promoter would be a mile away or so and say, okay, this is kayfabe, it's just between us. These are the directions to the secret spot where we're gonna have a drive-in show. And they would drive to a parking lot and behind some buildings, there would be a ring set up and all these fans would be in their cars and they'd be watching a wrestling show. So yeah, it's pretty innovative and wrestling always has been innovative. And whether you are at the WWE level or whether you're at the fist level, putting in a drive-in show for 40 to 60 fans, you know, when you love wrestling, you find a way to, you know, make those fans happy. And so, you know, I think it's a testament to the beauty of this thing we love that people didn't quit on professional wrestling. The 40 years that I've been watching wrestling, I've seen an evolution in it, you know, and you have too. And isn't it amazing how, how, how it has evolved and, but it's still, it's, it's still something that we enjoy and something we like, but it's, it's not what it was when I was, was a kid. No, it's certainly not what it was. And then, you know, you and I, before we went on air, we're talking about how our writing has evolved, how you look back on some of the MMA articles you did a few years ago and, you know, how happy people were with those articles. And you look at it and go, oh, I could have done better. And I look back on books I wrote, you know, 20 years ago or so. And I say, oh, I could have written a better book than that, or I could have expressed myself better. And so why should professional wrestling be any different? I grew up on the world-class wrestling scene. So that was, you know, a magical time for when I was watching it in, in the early eighties, you know, so we had David Von Erich, we had the Freebirds, the Von Erichs, you know, Chris great, Adams and. Yeah. Great wrestlers, great wrestling. And honestly, I sometimes want to, you know, I go on the Peacock network, uh, you know, because that's now where the WWE network is. 
And I often find myself watching world class because it was just so exciting and so fresh and new. And all of these guys were young and just full of vibrance. And, uh, and you know, the drug problems may have been going on behind the scenes, but they weren't evident if you were watching from home. And so uh, it was very different than the products that I was accustomed to. And at one point in New York City, and by now I was writing for WWE at this point, I was writing for their magazines. Um, at one point, I, we didn't have cable yet in Queens, New York, where I lived, in my section of Queens, New York but we still had UHF television. And at one point we, we actually were able to view world-class on UHF television. And it was a different type of product. And you know what, when I watch these, those matches today, they still hold up, they've aged well. I agree. Yeah, I agree. When I was working on the Lance Von Eric book, I spent a lot of time going through that catalog again and watching a lot of those matches again. And, and I agree with you. It was like, it's just as good today as it was 35 years ago. And, and I find with the world-class shows, you can sit with someone who's either a recent fan or even a non-fan and they can understand why it was so popular. They don't look at it and go, I don't get this. You know, whereas, you know, there are sometimes you look at some of the current product and if you're watching with a non-fan, the non-fan may say, OK, you showed it to me. I get it, but it's not like I really want to see it again. Right. No, I agree. Yeah, I, I wanted to add something to you uh, uh, about about the Lance Von Eric book, which surprised me. I have a friend of mine who one time was a. Um, a proofreader for a some book company and uh, a, a friend of mine a mutual friend of ours was telling him to uh, that he was reading my book and he really enjoyed it and so uh, he my friend who was the proofreader he says oh so and so says your book is is really good um, I hate wrestling I don't like anything about it I don't watch it but I'll help you. Why don't you give me three chapters and I'll and I'll try I'll try to finish it. But if I can't just understand, I don't like wrestling. Okay, that's fine. He came back the next day and said, hey, give me the rest of the book. You know, I'm curious about that. Now, is this somebody who grew up in Dallas, the Dallas area, claimed to hate wrestling, but still the Von Erichs were such a big part of the culture he couldn't look away? No, he, th this guy grew up in Chicago. Wow. Wow. Because I sometimes wonder, and sometimes in New York, I will meet people who were kids growing up in Dallas at the time, weren't necessarily wrestling people. But when the Von Erich name comes up, including Lance Von Erich, suddenly their interest is peaked. Yeah. Well, that, that was a very interesting uh, project in, in the sense that you know, when I first started, I guess, kind of like putting it out there that I wrote the book and I was going to these different Facebook, uh, Von Eric Facebook pages and stuff and posting pictures of Lance and saying the book was coming out. You, you can imagine some of the blowback that I was getting. And 
there was some actually some people who did not like me at first or did not like the idea that the book was coming out that read the book and you know um now have you know that me and you know maybe we're cordial together or have a mutual respect for each other that you know the maybe they like the book but they still don't like lance you know they you know people down here you know they they don't want anything to affect the the you know the von eric legacy von eric legacy but the truth of the matter is there would be no lance if it wasn't for fritz von eric like you can't blame you know the uh, mr vaughn for what for fritz von eric creating lance von eric then you know like the name of the book lance by chance you know by chance he becomes Lance von Erich. So what's he supposed to do? Live in shame for something he didn't even create? Right. Yeah, because he 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 comes out and says, you know, fully, you know, like, hey, I would not have been a wrestler at all had they not told me I was going to make money, you know, at 24 years old. So, yeah, it's very interesting, interesting story. And but I was glad to, to be able to work on that project. But moving on to that. Uh, or moving on on from that, I wanted to ask you because I I've read a good bit of the Too Sweet book. I like your your how you open the book. I I like uh, how you're talking about Joey Janelli and um, just how you you your I guess your descriptive writing style. Uh, just talk to me a little bit about that and how your writing style has evolved over the years. Well, I thought it was important. Thank you, by the way. I thought it was important to paint a picture of what the indie scene is and um, what the indie scene meant. And so I felt it was important to begin the book at All In, which, hey, later led to AEW. When I started the book, I didn't know there was going to be an AEW. You know, I thought All In might be the culmination of the book. Um, but here's Joey Janela, a guy who's been knocking around on the New Jersey Indies, not the largest guy, you know, still lives at home with his mother. And now he's on this, the biggest indie show, you know, since the, the largest show outside of WWE since uh, WCW went out of business. And it's like, had this happen? Had this happen? Well, now you, we're going to go back to the beginning and tell you the whole story. But I felt we needed to invest the reader in one character. And, you know, and this character's life would basically represent the life of the Indies. It's similar when I wrote a book with Classy Freddie Blassie. Classy Freddie, Freddie Blassie started wrestling, I believe, in the 1930s, and his career culminated in the 80s when he was a manager in the pay-per-view era. So in telling the story of his life, you could begin that story in the carnivals and end up with pay-per-view. So essentially, it's a history book of professional wrestling, which has always kept everybody in the dark, including keeping people, keeping quiet about the rich and storied history of, of professional wrestling. And by telling the story of Freddie Blassie, the man, 
you're seeing wrestling history unfold. You know, when, um, you know, I co-wrote a book with Ric Flair, it was the story of the NWA and what it meant to be NWA champion and how it was the champion's responsibility to barnstorm into all these different territories all over the world that were affiliated with the NWA and leave both with the belt around your waist, but having established the local main eventer as a bigger star than he was before you got there. And, you know, that that's an important role. And when people use terms to demean professional wrestling and use the term fake, it's so offensive because there's nothing fake about that. There's nothing fake about loving your craft and making others who you rub against better at their craft. And anybody who's an artist can relate to that. Right. When when Ric Flair, I remember when Ric Flair would come to Dallas and it it was a big deal, you know, and it was it was and that was and it was meant to be a big deal, you know. I mean, bringing Ric Flair in was was meant to bring more people to the arena who maybe not might go on a regular basis, you know? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the you know, the championship was a big thing. And Absolutely. having that touring champion, you know, that was a special event. And at a certain point, my uh, uncle and grandparents moved to Miami. And when they did, they were, you know, were watching the Florida promote championship wrestling from Florida, where the NWA champ would come. Now, I grew up in the WWWF uh, territory in New York. And so, you know, Bruno was a very big deal, but we would see Bruno if we, if you know, we had the, the money, we could see him every month at Madison Square Garden. Um, this was different. In um, Florida, it wasn't often when the NWA champ came over there. And I can recall uh, going to visit my grandparents and having the opportunity to see both Jack Briscoe and Harley Race defend the NWA belt. And it felt like I was part of history, like I was witnessing history. Right, I bet. Yeah, I, I, I've seen that match with Jack Briscoe and Terry Funk. Yeah. When the, yeah, when the belt changed hands, and let me tell you something, that was amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and look at these champions. Dory Funk Jr., Jack Briscoe, Terry Funk, Harley Race, Ric Flair. Look at how they made the people next to them sparkle and look how great they were against each other. Right. And in the early 80s, uh, Harley Race and Ric Flair pretty much dominated and traded that belt back and forth for three or four years. Yeah. Yeah. And then you had Dusty in the mix also. Sure. And say what you want about Dusty. Dusty had charisma like few others. He was amazing. My very first introduction to Dusty Rhodes, I was in Pennsylvania. We just left the church service and we went into this convenience store across the street and I went to the magazine rack and there was, I think, 1982, December of 1982, Inside Wrestling Magazine with a uh, Bob Wire fence match between Dusty Rhodes and Terry Funk. And I was about 14 years old and I, 
Dusty Rhodes is covered with the blood. And I went to my dad. I said, dad, can I buy this? Am I allowed to buy this? He goes, do you want to buy that? I said, I have my own money. He goes, all right. If you want to buy it, just put it in a bag and don't let your mother see it right away. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it was incredible. And, you know, I, I was speaking about this recently, how, you know, back then, of course, there was no internet. So we had no exposure to professional wrestling in other territories. So I would see a match. I remember there was the old NWF, which was also an outlaw promotion. It was Johnny Powers and uh, I think it was uh, Luis Martinez and Tex McKenzie was over there. And there was a match between Abdullah the Butcher and um, Ernie the Cat Lad in the municipal stadium in Cleveland. And they went into the stands and fought each other. And I remember my friend, John Diagardi, who's still my friend, saying, look at this, they were fighting inside the stadium and there was no way to view footage of that. And I remember just feeling this frustration, like how could I possibly miss that? I was just so curious to witness that wrestling that I'd read about in the magazines. Yeah, yeah, those magazines had a way of taking you to places that you'd never go and, you know, helping you discover different wrestlers and different places where wrestling took place. And yeah, it was exciting. I, 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 that's how I I discovered Ed Gilbert. Right. And think about it. You know, we were talking about before we, we went on air about how the industry's changed. This was done through the power of photography and writing. You know, there wasn't any internet. You weren't having, you know, a moving image in front of you. You had to look at the pictures and read the words and use your imagination. And that imagination took me pretty far. And me too. Yeah, I was I was ordering magazines. They were coming in the mail and uh, my parents were just happy that I was reading something. Right. And I did. I would read those magazines from cover to cover. And not only that, the truth is I didn't come from an educated family. And so there was a lot of real world information I didn't know about. And I remember like I'd read a wrestling magazine and there'd be a reference to Abdullah the Butcher being from the Sudan. I'd go to the Sudan, huh? And I would uh, go to the encyclopedia and I'd look up the Sudan. So I was actually learning about, you know, academic subjects by watching wrestling. Right. Yeah, I, I totally get it. Yeah, you get to look up all these other places. And I've, I, that's how I found out where the Bahamas were, because I read something about Ric Flair wrestling uh, Carlos Colon in the Bahamas. And so I looked up the Bahamas and found out where they were. Right, right. It was really quite wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. I was curious about what you thought about the state of wrestling today uh, you know ring of honor was just bought by aew um, vince mcmahon and in, in wwe is you know they cleared out his roster uh, you know i mean he of course he still has talent don't get me don't misunderstand but you know it's over a hundred people he's probably caught and 
I mean, I you can. Was, I think it was eighty. Okay. Twenty twenty one. Okay, and then you get wrestling. You can probably get wrestling on every day of the week on television. I was talking to a wrestler who uh, said, "Well, it's a good time for for a wrestling fan." However, you know, do you think these wrestlers are making a lot of money? And I sent you that that uh, payout sheet from the early eighties. You know. And on that were a lot of comments from wrestlers saying things like, well, you know, how do we get it back to this? You know, how, how do we, you know, in, get, get our pay increased to what it was in 1980? This was um, a payoff sheet from Paul Bosch. And I'm, I'm looking at the payoffs now. So, you know, you have Bruiser Brody and Gino Hernandez making $1,000 a night. Harley Race and Mil Moscaris are in the um, are, are in the main event. Harley's making twenty three hundred dollars. Mil Moscaris is making close to twenty six hundred dollars, and then you have the midget wrestlers making five hundred for the night. And I guess well, the uh, the lowest the, the the lowest guy on the card is making two hundred and fifty bucks. Bull Ramos and uh, Tiger Conway Jr. And that's not bad. That's not bad. Like think about uh, some of the guys who are working the indies now. They'd be pretty happy with 250 bucks, especially if they could work a couple of nights in a row like that. Absolutely. Well, you could definitely live off that. If you yeah. can, yeah, if you could string yeah, about there, three there of are those. Other opportunities. You asked me about the state of the industry. And one person I spoke with when I was researching the book on wrestling during the age of COVID-19 uh, was Danhausen, who uh, ended up be, being signed by Ring of Honor during the COVID epidemic or pandemic, and then was recently signed by AEW. And he was able to use Patreon and Cameo uh, and sell his merch and make money from people just watching his videos and doing, you know, entertaining little bits online. So those are money-making opportunities that didn't exist back then. And, you know, I think it was Joey Janela said to me, you know, that, uh, hey, because of, uh, you know, uh, social media, we're not sitting with, you know, boxes of our own merchandise in our garages. We can actually figure out a way to sell this stuff while everybody's locked down. There's definitely some good things that came out of the, the COVID pandemic. Yeah. And people learned to use social media. One of the people I interviewed was Ricky Morton. And Ricky Morton said, hey, I didn't know anything about social media. Ricky Morton's a guy in his 60s. And uh, through social, because of, uh, you know, of his survival instincts, and because he still is plugged into the business and enjoys it the way we do, rather than saying, oh, it was better back in my day, he figured out a way to make money with social media during the pandemic. And also promote some of the young guys he trains. Right. And with his son on the scene, and he's pretty much making a, what you would call like a, a comeback in his career. He certainly is. He certainly is. And I've seen him, you know, I've been one, I saw him at a Joey Janela's spring break. I wrote about it in uh, 
too sweet inside the indie wrestling revolution. I guess that would have been in 2018, I think 2018 or 2019, whatever the WrestleMania was in New Jersey. But I saw him on a midnight show. It was him and, uh, you know, it, uh, Robert Gibson against Santana and Ortiz. And, you know, after midnight, it's some, you know, small arena in Jersey City. And it was just a thriller of a match. And afterwards, we had Santana and Ortiz take the microphone and talk about what an honor it was to get in the ring with these guys. And it's like, we get in the ring with these two Southern guys who gave these two Puerto Rican kids from New York City hope that we could do this one day. And it's like, thank you, thank you, thank you. And it was very touching. Yeah, it's, it's nice to see the, I guess the camaraderie or the, the respect that's giving to other wrestlers or- And the legends. And the legends. Yeah. Yeah, those guys definitely paved the way for a lot of guys on the scene today. I mean, look, everything begets something else. You know, the guys in the, in the 30s paved the way for the guys who were eventually on television. You know, the guys who were there in the early days of television paved the way for the guys who ended up on cable. The guys on cable paved the way for the guys in pay-per-view. The guys on pay-per-view paved the way for people who are on streaming now. What is your, I guess, your hope or your thoughts about the, the Ring of Honor deal? Well, I mean, I don't want to see Ring of Honor die. Um, I, I, I love the brand name. I love what the brand represents. Um, I'm gratified to know that people will be watching that rich library and see those great matches. And, um, you know, the, the AEW fan base is a fan base that's aware, by and large, aware of pro wrestling history. So I think they respect pro wrestling history and they'll watch the matches between uh, CM Punk and Samoa Joe or, or um, Nigel McGuinness and Brian Danielson. And they'll know how special those were. And, um, you know, look, I'm only reading rumors, I guess. Will Tony Khan use Ring of Honor as kind of a de uh, developmental territory? Will uh, they have occasionally a big show, uh, you know, may, you know with, with some of the Ring of Honor guys, with some of the AEW guys participating as well? I'm hoping that the value of the Ring of Honor championship is maintained. You know, there's only room for, say, one main brand in this company, but perhaps Ring of Honor could play the role that the NXT takeovers did. And I think that would be pretty satisfying for everybody. Well, Keith, I appreciate your time today. I thank you very much for coming on. I know we could go on and- We could I, go on for hours. I'm, I'm gonna bring you back. I'd love to come back. Okay. We're, we're you know, gonna... It's funny, like as I'm talking to you, I was thinking, oh, this is a guy, I knew this already. This is a guy we'd just love to talk to if we weren't on here, but hey, we should have these conversations on air so that people can listen to them. We're both having a good time and we're talking about things that the listeners can relate to. Right, right. Yeah, and and we could probably have 
a conversation once a month and talk about totally different stuff that it'd never be the same. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, Keith, again, thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, plug your book and, and tell fans how they can find you and, and where you're at on social media. Okay. If you type in Keith Elliott Greenberg, you'll find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, you, I, I, I think I'm up to 4,600 Facebook friends now. So I still have room for another 400 and uh, you know, Twitter and, and Instagram, you know, the sky's the limit. I'm still relatively new on both of those platforms. Um, my most recent wrestling book in 2020 was Too Sweet Inside the Indie Wrestling Revolution. But I'm particularly excited for uh, Follow the Buzzards, Pro Wrestling in the Age of COVID-19 that will be released by ECW Press in the fall. And uh, I, I just, right before we went on air, sent my comments related to the copy editing, the copy edited manuscript back to the publisher. So I'm hoping within a month or so, uh, people can pre-order the book. Very good. Very good. Well, good. I wish you all the best with that. We'll definitely bring you back to talk about that uh, when the book comes out, but we'll definitely bring you back before then. Mention one more thing. Yeah. I also am a monthly columnist for Inside the Ropes magazine in, in the UK. And that's a newsstand wrestling magazine, not unlike um, PWI and Inside Wrestling and Wrestling Re Review back in the day. And it takes a few weeks if you're ordering, um, you know, Inside the Ropes in the US, but it, it's a good read. And there's a great group of writers, particularly some British writers who've been writing about the scene for decades, and it's really great to be exposed and exposed to them. And actually, um, I'm, I'm really enjoying getting to know them as friends right now. And say that one more time for our, our listeners. Uh, Inside the Ropes Wrestling Magazine. It's in the UK, and we both uh, cover the current scenes, and we also have a lot of nostalgia in there. All right. Yes, I've I've been meaning to look into that, and I'm you know what? I'm I'm going to go ahead and take some action on that because I've I, I've heard you talk about it in the past and it does it does intrigue me. I just got done uh, interviewing the, the Knights and I'm going to be putting that podcast on my oh, website. Fabulous. I can't wait to listen to that. All right. Well, Keith, again, it's been my pleasure and I can't wait to talk to you again. Same here. You're listening to the Russellville podcast where wrestling lives. Pro Wrestling Vault. 35 short stories, including Harley Race, Ricky Morton, Tracy Smothers, and Tim Storm. Along with 300 photos from the independent scene. Taken from Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. Get your book today by going to Russellville.com. Russellville. It's where wrestling lives. PWC Podcast with Rick.
Del Santo. For all your wrestling reviews, interviews, and news, Rick covers the United Wrestling Network, the NWA, and the Northeast region of the United States Independence. PWC, 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 in the zone. Ring the Bell Radio. Listen to J.D., Barris, and Logan talk about wrestling news, reviews, in-depth conversations, and interviews. The podcast that we want to hear, and you will too. Ring the Bell Radio. We call it in the ring. <laughs>